A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Colin Bloom. Colin is a former director of the Conservative Christian Fellowship and recently authored the Bloom Review, a report looking into faith in modern society. We're going to hear more about his findings after hearing from over 20,000 people of faith over the past couple of years. But before we speak to the man himself, I want to share my thoughts on the report. Last week, I attended the launch of the report by the government's independent faith advisor, Colin Bloom, Does Government Do God? This is a welcome and comprehensive review of how government and the public sector in general engages with faith in the UK today. It has been four years in the making and offers a series of recommendations to strengthen relationships between the state and faith groups. I'm delighted that we'll be talking to Colin Bloom later in this show. One fundamental proposal is to ensure that everyone on the public payroll, including local and national politicians, NHS and teaching staff, police and prison officers, are given faith literacy training. This is hugely welcome from a Christian perspective. It's clear that amongst wider society and within our institutions, there is no longer even a basic knowledge of Christian values, teaching and observance, things that would have been taken for granted 50 years ago. For baby boomers and those from Generation X, Christianity was the faith of their parents. But for many millennials and those from Generation Z, Christianity is instead the faith of a small number of people that they don't know, don't understand, and probably don't like. If Christianity is true, then it means God knows what is best for our lives. That in turn means we seek to love him with all our hearts and pursue his desires rather than our own. Let's not pretend then that this has ever been an attractive proposition, even when our Western societies were more religiously literate. Christians choose to live as we do out of a deep conviction that God is who he says he is. And for significant numbers of our contemporaries who do not share or understand this conviction, Many of the values and practices of Christians are seen as anachronistic, unattractive, and even dangerous. If Western societies have become arrogant, foolish, and discriminatory when it comes to their interaction with Christians and indeed with other faiths, this is largely due to a fundamental ignorance of what motivates us. Now, as a Christian, this should not bother me because I know that our God is bigger and more enduring than the temporary values of any given age. Christians are called to be countercultural in every century. And we are called to show love and grace towards those who think badly of us. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus tells us. So we shouldn't be surprised or resentful when that trouble comes. But there is certainly an assumption in public life that an absence of faith is the natural and neutral position when, of course, it isn't. There is no neutrality. Instead, we have a range of competing worldviews. A grounding in faith literacy will be hugely valuable in challenging this lazy assumption. Politicians, civil servants and the media will better serve a diverse and plural society if they are curious about why people of faith think as they do, especially when their faith is more than simply cultural. This will also assist in the understanding of other faiths, and the report is particularly clear that more needs to be done to emphasise, for example, that the vast majority of Muslims do not hold to the views of Islamic fundamentalism. 
As I welcome this report, I believe it also presents a challenge to people of faith. And again, I speak from a Christian perspective to work on our own cultural and political literacy, which is often woefully poor. Christians often back away from cultural engagement when it feels like it might lead to compromise. But to use a missionary analogy, we do not need to worship the local gods in order to speak the local language. It is important that we understand our neighbours beliefs and values and not simply assume that their motives towards us are malicious. Christians also need to understand why certain parts of the Bible and traditional Christian teaching seem intolerant and exclusionary in today's society. Let's show the same curiosity towards others' beliefs that we would like them to show towards ours. We should also realise how we are heard by society. Next week, we're going to witness the coronation of our new king in a cathedral by the Archbishop of Canterbury as part of an overtly Christian service. The king will be the head of the Church of England. We have bishops in the House of Lords and each day the House of Commons opens with prayers read by the speaker's chaplain. You see, for the majority of observers, Christianity is the establishment. And we need to be very aware of this, even as we might feel increasingly marginalised for our beliefs. So as I welcome Colin Bloom's report and look forward to speaking with him shortly, I pray that it will improve engagement and understanding between the state and faith groups. But I also pray that those of us who hold a faith will commit to a curiosity about views and attitudes that may feel alien and even threatening to us. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, Colin Bloom, an independent faith advisor to the government. Colin, we've got a lot to talk about in regards to this very interesting and important report. Well, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about how you came to find faith. Well, uh, hi, Tim, and it's great to be on your show. Uh, I, I, I grew up in, a, in, a, in an agnostic household. Uh, the family on my father's side were Jewish, lapsed. Um, and I left home quite young, and I found myself going to a local Baptist church uh, in South London, and there I met Jesus. So I would say I am a Christian, but I think a better description is uh, I'm a born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-led, devil-kicking follower of Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest man that ever lived, and I always say to people that even if you don't believe he's the Son of God or that he rose from the dead, find me a better, wiser, more radical guide, teacher or mentor. So I'm work in progress. I'm doing my best, but I just follow Jesus. Right. We'll have that on our CV. That is brilliant, Colin. <laughs> so much. <laughs> um, but look, let's go beyond and think about your work life. You worked in industry for some time. You worked in the charity sector. And then you became the director of the Conservative Christian Fellowship before moving into into government. Tell me a little bit about your journey and how your faith made a difference to the choices that you made. Well, it, I, I've always been involved in, in in politics. And so, you know, for what now, 35 years, politics has been, you know, a really important part of my my life and, and um, um, something that I'm fascinated by. And I think politics is really important. It's something that can make a difference. And it I've always said it makes a difference most to those people who are usually the least interested in it. Um, you know, it, it matters most 
you know, I did pretty well under Tony Blair. I did pretty well. You know, we, we all do pretty well. Um, if you if you've got relationships, if you've got education, if you've got, you know, a good job, you, you'll you'll in the UK you'll do pretty well. Whoever's in government, but it matters most for the most marginalised, for the you know the, the 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 least, the lost, the lonely. It matters most to them, who's in charge. And so politics has always been a really important part of my my journey and. Um, uh, and so in 2010, I, um, I joined the Conservative Christian Fellowship as their, as their executive director. And then I was appointed as director of the Conservative Party and um, ended up being the International Secretary, Director of Outreach. Then 2019, um, Boris um, uh, asked me, when he was Prime Minister, asked me to do this report into how uh, government engages with faith people of faith and places of worship and and here we are now three and a half years later and um some 13 years after i went full-time into politics um that uh, the, the the report is finished and as as uh, as you say it was it was launched last week and um uh it's sixty-five thousand words it's 160 pages we took over a million pieces of data Twenty-one thousand responses to our call for evidence it's a very big piece of work very thorough um and hopefully if government take it on then mm. um then the relationship that government have with faith all faiths will be uh, much better and much improved and do you think that was the thinking when boris johnson asked you to uh, undertake this report that that was his intention what what do you think prompted him to ask you to take on this really important and detailed piece of work what was he trying so, to achieve uh, well he he obviously always knew me as the as the um if, if you like the faith guy or the jesus guy or the christian guy whatever the the terminology he would use but i think he had an instinct that the relationship between government and faith communities was not what it should be um um he was obviously he's been a, a member of parliament for a long time he he was foreign secretary he was uh, mayor of london and then when he was uh, prime minister so he had you know some pretty big jobs and a ringside seat into you know a number of um, a number of areas and whatever else he may be he does have you know he does have instinct for some interesting things and i think that Perhaps that instinct was, could the relationship between government and and places of worship and people of faith be improved? And um, and he asked me and he asked me to do it. So I got stuck into it, and then COVID happened. Mm. So I had to pivot my role away from um, perhaps focusing on the report so much as 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 really sort of helping manage the relationship between government and faith communities. Uh, during the during the um, the mm. pandemic, so I kind of led on the the roundtables with the Sikh community, the Hindu community, the Jewish community, and all the other Christian communities as well, um, and um, Muslim community too. And and of course, um, that whilst COVID was an awful thing for everybody, it did actually provide some very rich material for the report in terms of being able to see up close and personal just how inadequate much of government was in relationships and dealing with uh, with the faith community. So let's get to the report then. You made 22 recommendations. I don't think in the time we've got, we're going to do justice to all of them. So let's 
pull out just a few of them that you'd be very keen to highlight and that I think are interesting, will be interesting to listeners. Let's start first off with the uh, recommendation that there should be faith literacy for all public servants. Why would you say that? And what do you think that could look like? Well, overall, the report spends, you know, most of most of the energy of the report is in demonstrating that faith, people of faith and places of worship make an overwhelmingly positive contribution to society. So um, if if people of faith were to withdraw their, um, you know, their charitable works, if you like, whether it's food banks, whether it's mum and top groups, whether it's youth clubs, whatever it may be. Um, uh, you know, there would be a huge hole in society. Faith is a force for good. And um, and people of faith make an overwhelmingly positive contribution to society in almost every area of human endeavour. People of faith are very busy making life better for them for, for others. And, and that's evidenced in the report. There's just, you know, thousands of references to uh, of, uh, examples of, of, of where faith is making a really positive contribution so if that is the case and i've demonstrated that it is and also faith is not going away tim that's the other thing faith is mm. it's very different today than it was 50 years ago but faith is alive and well it's much more diverse but it's growing um and it's um making a really making a huge impact so if that's the case then um if government is to be as effective and as efficient as it can possibly be, then it needs to understand faith. Mm. Faith is, is important to a majority of the British public. More than 60% of the British public say they have a faith. And if that's the case, there are more people with a faith than there are perhaps people with disabilities. There are more people with a faith than, than there are old people or young people or any other protected characteristic. Government have to understand. I'm not saying that they should reduce their understanding of any other group, but they have to understand um, faith and people of faith rather better. That way, if they do so, they will deliver public services better. So a a big recommendation is mandatory faith literacy training for all public servants. And I think it's really important that that, uh, government get hold of that and, uh, and, 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 and do something about it. We've got a We've got a, um, you know, a number of government departments that are uh, working in, whether it's in community, whether it's the, the home office, working within community, within society. They need to understand um, the people that they're serving rather better. Same for the NHS, same for the, for the prison service, would be exactly the same for education. When it comes to protected characteristics, there are nine protected characteristics, you know, age, disability, um, race, sexuality, and others. Faith is amongst those nine protected characteristics, but faith is is just not taught. You know, it is the Cinderella protected characteristic. And I'm hoping that um, this government or, or any future government will take this particular Cinderella to the ball. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're joined by Colin Bloom, Independent Faith Advisor to the Government. Uh, Colin, the second recommendation that when we talked earlier you wanted to highlight was that the government should appoint a faith champion. What would they do? 
Yeah, I think I think government needs to have an independent faith champion who will sit across all government departments. Um, will serve. The, we have a faith minister. This faith champion and the and the team of civil servants that work for them um, should have that body of knowledge, that experience, and relational capital to be able to support the faith minister, to support the prime minister's special envoy for religious freedom, um, and to help with help government really sort of guide its way through some of the engagement that that it needs to do with faith communities mm-hmm. so um an example of that would be you know a, a new bill comes out um let's have a unit within government that really knows its stuff that can then say well what impact will this have on faith and and people of faith that way those that the, that bill will 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 land much more um, well significantly easier, more effectively, more efficiently. Um, so that's one area. The other area is, of course, so many people of faith when they came back um, when they came back in the call for evidence that we did said we only ever hear from politicians during an election period or when government wants something. Um, and 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 that's you I mean you would have known that's not. That's not new. That's that you know people have been saying that for years. Um, mm. But but here's an opportunity for us to fix that. If faith is as important to so many people as the evidence suggests it is, then it's incumbent on government to understand those people better, to have a relationship with those people better, um, and to um, engage with them better. So so it would just mean mean that we'll have. Um, you know, hopefully a, a more more effect, effective government for the people that government serves. And then also where you've got some of the harms that are done within faith communities, and my report goes on to some of that, um, where there are genuine victims of, of whether it's financial conver- uh, coercion, whether it's forced marriage, whether it's faith-based extremism or, or something else, then you'll have a, you'll have a group led by somebody who, has mm. that relational capital who will be able to um who will be able to you know engage and, and help those victims and help get government policies straight so that it can deal with some of it all of it well let's move on to one of those points you just raised about potential harms the maybe the final recommendation we're going to have time to look at today you advocate in the report for the strengthening and improvement of the government's work tackling forced and coercive marriage. What, why would that be such a significant step forward? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. That, I mean, if there was only one thing that comes out of this report, and obviously there are 22 recommendations, I hope all of them are accepted. But if government said to me, we will only accept one of them, it would probably be the one on forced and coercive marriage. Because for decades, for generations, every successive government of every colour, every political persuasion has ducked this issue. It's what the former Home Secretary Charles Clark said, it's in the too difficult box. It's mm. just too difficult for government to deal with. And um, and I don't believe that. I think it needs to be dealt with. Between five and there will be between, between five and 8,000 victims of forced and coercive marriage in the UK this year, every year. If you add up all of the um, all of the victims that we've got in the UK of forced and coercive marriage, it's probably more than 250,000 um, victims. The majority of them will be women or girls, 
Um, and government has ducked this issue for too long. Forced and coercive marriage predominantly happens within faith communities. It's a, it's a big challenge within some parts of the British Muslim community, some parts of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, in the Gypsy Roman Traveller community, but and, and, and elsewhere. So I think all, you know, all faith groups will have very small pockets where it's happening. But government have, I think, successive governments, they've been talking, you know, fine words about violence against women and girls. Um, but it says that uh, it feels to me the the way that Jesus approached the um, um, the Pharisees when he said, you strain out gnats, but you swallow camels. I think this feels to me like government has, you know, is 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 swallowing this camel. It's the camel in the room. They have to deal with it. Um, and so that's why I think this is it's it's hugely important and it's going to be controversial. It needs to be handled sensitively. I don't think government can arrest their way out of this problem. I think a lot of effort needs to be put into education um, and um, and working closely with the different communities. But one thing's for certain in in modern Britain, there shouldn't be anyone who is forced or coerced into marrying somebody against their will. That should just be a straightforward crime and it should be dealt with. Mm. As we as we come to the end of our time together, Colin, I wonder if you might have a, a advice that you would give to faith communities as to how they should improve their interactions with government. Is there something you think that can be done from the other side of the divide, so to speak? Yeah, I think um, I think there's plenty that there's plenty I could say, and and um, one one thing that for certain is, I suppose. You, and you know this, Tim. Um, there, are, there are a few of us that can speak fluent politics and fluent faith. Um, 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 so I don't expect politicians necessarily to be able to speak the language of faith fluently, or people of faith, faith leaders, to speak the language of politics fluently. I mean, it feels um, sometimes there's a bit of a divide. It does need interlocutors occasionally, uh, like yourself. Um, but um, I, I would say, you know, pick your battles. And um, uh, I would all, I would think also that one of the big challenges is that within individual faith communities, there's always people who are trying to be the spokesperson for self, some self-appointed gatekeepers, if you like. And 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 I think within faith communities, they could be a bit more discerning about who they put forward, um, um, and or or who they who they allow to sort of speak loudly on their behalf, because sometimes not everyone who speaks into government from a faith perspective is the most credible witness. Um, and uh, uh, and I would just gently suggest that there are probably some better, more nuanced and more um, balanced characters that could be a, uh, that could be a, a, a better um, spokesperson for the different faith groups. Well, Colin, thank you so much for that. Great advice. And the report is excellent. We're really grateful to you for the effort that you've put into it. We know that the government will now consider uh, this and we hope to get a response. Any, any idea what sort of timescale that might be? Well, I, I have a no surprise policy. Um, so there's no Secretary of State, no minister that hasn't been aware of what I've been doing for the last few years. Um, so hopefully it won't be too long. But you know, you know politics, Tim. I Who do. knows? <laughs> I do. Well, I, I, well, I shall make it my business to 
gently ask ministers how they're getting on considering it and responding to it. But Colin, we couldn't be more grateful to you for your time and for the enormous effort you put into this really important piece of work. Uh, Go well. See you soon. Thank you, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please do drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. And there's a really strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, David in Yorkshire has been in touch and he says the following. Hello, Tim. Bringing up this subject over 18 months after your interview with Kate Forbes may seem a bit odd. However, having recently read your autobiography and with Kate in the news, I thought I'd ask your views on this. In your book, you say, you're referring to Scottish and Welsh nationalists, that you've always found nationalism to be an utterly illiberal and destructive creed, something which I I agree with you wholeheartedly. You go on to quote the saying, a quote saying, patriots love their country and nationalists hate their neighbour. I wonder why you chose not to challenge her on this. Well, it's a good question, and thank you for reading the book. But, David, I think the answer to that is that the interviews that I conduct on this programme, particularly with politicians, and especially politicians who think different things to me politically, are about, I suppose, seeing that there are so many different political viewpoints that Christians can uh, arrive at while still sharing the same faith, while still believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. So I don't think it is my role, or I choose not to in these interviews, to make my guests uncomfortable or to engineer rows within them. It's fairly obvious Kate's been very clear about why she thinks that independence for Scotland is the right way forward, and she's made that case in, in many uh, places before. And Likewise, I take the view as a, as a liberal and someone who believes in the union, that nationalism is quite a dangerous thing in all guises, even when it's represented by nice and otherwise good people. All the same, I like to think that what we're trying to do do in this podcast is to lift the lid on politics from a Christian perspective and to encourage people by showing that there is so much that uh, may divide us on political issues, and yet we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ following Jesus in our daily lives. And I hope that's what we've managed to achieve over the last year or three. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together as we normally do uh, with prayer. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Colin Bloom. We thank you that Boris Johnson asked him to write this report. We thank you for all the people who've worked on it and all the people who've responded to it. And we thank you for its recommendations. We pray that it would lead to those people uh, who, like ourselves, have a faith uh, being understood better by politicians and that there may be even greater freedom in this country um, for us to believe what we believe and to live the lives we choose to live faithfully, humbly, obediently to you. We pray the government would respond in a timely fashion and would take on board uh, many, if not all, of the recommendations that are made in Collins' report. And loving Heavenly Father, as we look to the coronation of King Charles III this coming weekend, uh, we pray that that would be an event that would be unifying for our country. We pray that uh, it would go off without any hitch or any uh, anything that would anyway unsettle or divide the country uh, or anything that might be a threat to, to life or safety or the peace of our country. 
We also pray for the service and we pray for the message. We thank you for the Archbishop of Canterbury and we pray for um, his message to the country, that it would be faithful uh, to the gospel and that you would open the hearts and minds and ears of millions of people who watch, that they might hear the gospel and that many would respond and put their trust in you. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.